Hey, what's up, guys? Just want to give an update on the Cinco de Mayo event that I'm going to be having here at my home. It has uh, turned into a one-year anniversary uh, podcast episode that will be highly produced, going to have a local uh, director be the producer of it. Um, we're going to be having it here uh, in my pool room, going to be shooting some pool, having some drinks, uh, hanging out. So the folks that are going to be joining me for this uh, one-year anniversary episode are going to be Buck Johnson from the Counterflow podcast, Matt Erickson from the King Pilled podcast, Andrew from Property Liberty podcast, and Kyle Anslone from the Conflicts of Interest podcast. We're all going to be hanging out. Uh, Well-fed, of course. I'm going to be a host uh, for, the, for, my, for my homies here. And for anybody that wants to come in and sit in on the event and also stay for the evening and hang out with all the podcasters that I just said, especially if you uh, jam some of their uh, content, uh, be sure to contact me at loslibertinos210 at gmail.com and get information on how you can get a ticket to sit in on the episode and uh, hang out with us for the evening. It'll, it'll be a good, uh, fun event. And I hope to uh, hear from you. Peace. Puro chingazos and fire. Welcome, everyone, to Los Libertinos podcast. I am your host, Carlos Abelard, and this is Chingazos and Fire, episode number 38. Our guest today is Olga Maria. She is a Latina liberty activist. She's a wife, mother, homeschooler, and a small business owner practicing integrative medicine as an acupuncturist, herbalist, and a cannabis advocate. She's the newly elected chair of the Vermont Libertarian Party and is the host of the Latina Libertarian Podcast. Uh, welcome, Olga. Hey, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for uh, coming on. So uh, on these uh, interviews, I like to do uh, upfront a little bit of your background because uh, you have an interesting background because actually in your background there, you have some flags that are going to kind of like tell some of that story there. So if you don't mind, can you kind of uh, tell us where you were uh, born and raised, uh, some of your uh, like siblings, family uh, st structure a little bit and kind of your uh, how your life kind of took you down this path from New York to uh, Vermont, you know, if, uh, if you don't mind, please. Thank you. Oh, not at all. Thanks for asking. So I was born and raised in New York City. I was born in the 70s. So I was born when New York was really gritty, gritty city. Um, my mom came from Puerto Rico um, when she got married to my dad, who's from, um, my father's from Barranquilla, Colombia. And he emigrated to New York City sometime in the 60s. And um, so I grew up in, and I grew up in Queens and I grew up in a neighborhood that was a real immigrant neighborhood. And my particular block, um, we were the first Latin 
Latino family on the block. So it was interesting kind of growing up at that time because the stereotypes of Puerto Ricans particularly and later on of Colombians wasn't so positive. So it was interesting growing up in that, but. What, what was, were they? What were they? I mean, I don't know. What were they like? Oh, this? okay. So if you look at any movie in like the 70s and the early 80s and there was a Puerto Rican woman in it, she was playing the prostitute. Mm. And if there was a Puerto okay. Rican man in it, he was playing a pimp or a drug dealer. Oh, okay. So, the, the, so it was like hardcore. So if you look at movies like, um, there's an old movie called Fort Apache, The Bronx. It's a, hor it's a horrible movie of like every horrific stereotype of, um, of Puerto Ricans. But, you know, so there's, if you look at old movies with a certain eye, you'll just kind of see that this predominance of stereotypes. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, growing up at that time, um, this is what a lot of people who never personally met Puerto Ricans or Colombians or Latinos in general, this is, was their perception. So it was, it was tough in a sense, kind of being like that first family on that block. And, and all the kids were immigrants. We were all children of immigrants, like Italian, Polish, Irish, Greek, you name it. But everyone's interacting with each other and, and working through these filters of the stereotypes, right? Because they're stereotypes of everybody. Um, but I remember it was like, it was really nasty at one time when we, when we first moved in um, there was a, you know, and, and this is back when kids would just run the streets, right? We'd go outside and play and you would come back when it was time for dinner. So, you know, there was always kind of kids running around and you'd, you'd look for kids to play with. And there was a group of kids that they were really nasty. And so they would hear my mom speaking to us in Spanish and they would just shout names and stuff. And then they started to, I remember an incident where they threw like dirty magazines at at our backyard at my mom, like trying to, I guess, insinuate that like she's a, a, a prostitute or whatever. So it was just like weird. And then, um, then like we would fight it out. And, um, and then I remember like my mom went and talked to those parents and they were like, yeah, we'll take care of it. And that kid got a beat down probably. And then we all end up being friends anyway, but there was just like these type of weird incidences where, you know, we would, work through the stereotypes that like we're being told what they were so for so this was like yeah so I grew up before the 90s before Ricky Martin made Latinos cool like this was before we were cool this is when we were drug dealers and like and crazy people so um but it built character and I think that was one of the things that made me really um appreciate my culture because I I couldn't understand this choque I couldn't understand that that you know people really had set in their mind like what Puerto Ricans were like or what Colombians were like and what those places were right because everything is just you know Tony Montana and like all these weird movies that are portraying us in a certain light and um, it made me really want to learn about my culture and learn about history and I've always loved history and so as I got older that's kind of one of the things that um, that I did um, and um, and, and yeah, so it was it was really cool growing up in that multicultural environment. Um, and I'm sure like other, you know, there, there were incidences where other kids, you know, like Italian and like, oh, your family's in the mafia and, and whatever, like all those little stupid stereotypes that kids have of each other and that we say to each other. Pretty much like everyone that I grew up with um, 
that had that type of thing because they heard it in their home or, you know, they just thought that's how you're supposed to be. We all grew out of that. And actually, like, for the most part, the kids that I grew up with um, who weren't Latino, like, were still all tight knit and connect with each other. And most of them had Latino kids anyway. <laughs> we want. <laughs> that's funny so yeah you so then um so then you grew up uh in queens and then you had uh like you 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 were good at school you you liked school enough to maybe go into college or what what did you kind of how was your education so, so i went to catholic school for 12 years and um like a lot of you know, kids of immigrants, it was like, you got to work hard in school, you have to go to college. And, um, you know, my father came to this, to, to the United States, and he was a hard worker. And he, he worked in so many different things. And then he became um, actually like, he was the advertising executive of El Diario La Prensa, which was the large, I don't know if it still is, but it was the largest Spanish newspaper across the country. And so like, he, hmm. he made that goal and we lived we lived really comfortably and we were able you know we were able to travel a lot to puerto rico and 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 and, and do all of that we lived in an in a nice house um and so education was really important for my family and you know they worked really hard so that we can go to good school so we so we did that and then um so i went to college and in college of course being like <laughs> Um, you're coming from a hardworking family, like then you get attracted to, oh, socialism. <laughs> but one of the things that really, it wasn't really that that brought me into it, but I think I was just always intrigued with politics. And in particular, because I grew up in the 80s, there was that era where there was a lot of violence and um, there was a, in, the, in the independence movement for Puerto Rico. So that was always a taboo subject in my house. And so when I grew up, like, of course, that was one of the things that I wanted to learn about. And I was going to school in New York City. So there was like all these resources to to learn about that. Um, but predominantly, like in that is very it was it was predominantly all if not all left wing. So I got involved in, you know, becoming a student activist and wanting to learn more about what that movement was about and um, became a community organizer. And um, around that time was when the issue with the, the Navy bombing Vieques became predominant because one of the employees on the base was actually killed. Um, so that sparked this huge movement in the late 90s. To I don't know what Navy that is. Wow. When were you born, Carlos? 83. Oh, okay. Really? Okay. So yeah, so it was a big, so it was a big deal. And there was a huge movement of getting the U.S. Navy out of Vieques because there is a naval base there. And since, oh gosh, I think since around World War II or around World War II, they started practicing and it's an inhabited, Vieques is a smaller island that's part of Puerto Rico. Mm. It's one of the municipalities and um, people live there. And they started practicing their their bombing in oh. in Vieques, and so not only so not only the environmental ha hazard uh, ha um, havoc that was wreaked with all the bombs, but they also stored munitions and they stored munitions that had toxic chemicals in them. So Vieques, um, because of that, for many many years, predominantly had a much higher incidence of a lot of cancers, rare cancers. Um, and Vieques didn't have its own hospital, so the people who lived there always had to go to the mainland. So when this, so when this young man was killed, it just kind of brought to the forefront 
all of these issues. Um, and so I became really active in that. And I had gone over there. Um, a, a, a group of people actually took over part of the naval base and inhabited it as a way of, it was a civil disobedience and it was done as a way of stopping the bombs so the bombs could stop. Eventually, what ended up happening is that Clinton was the president at the time and he negotiated kind of um, a three-year period where they would stop and they would withdraw, um, but they've never cleaned up. And um, so there's still that contamination that's there. But I became really active in that. And um, as a result of that, I, I, and I had been a teacher. So like I went to college and I took like a million and one classes, right? Because I was interested in so many things in history. Um, and I ended up going and I became a teacher for, for a while. Um, and I was always interested and I was a special ed teacher and I was bilingual. So I was a bilingual special ed teacher and I was working with young kids. And I was, I was so interested in the kind of the health things that they were going through in their, in their um, disability diagnosis. And, and with the going to Vieques and learning so much about, you know, the, the, the health, um, the health factors of the people that were there and like how they differed so much and just all these differences with the environmental contamination. I really was like, okay, I wanna go into healthcare somehow. Um, and I had a couple of friends who were doctors and I was like, you know, I really, like I'm interested in going into health or medicine, but I don't know like what I should do. And they were like, you would be a kick-ass medic. So I was like, okay. So <laughs> I became an EMT after that. Um, and I worked as an EMT for a while. And then um, I became a paramedic. I, I took my paramedic course um, and I got into that. And in the interim, I had, you know, I met my husband, I got married and I had um, our first child and when I became a paramedic, it was because it's a year long program, it's intensive. And the idea was, okay, I'm gonna do this. And then afterwards I'm gonna like become a nurse or I'll become a physician's assistant. Like I was gonna continue my education. And you know, um, after I had my first son, I was breastfeeding and I was like, this is amazing. And I learned so much about the messaging of trying to control women's bodies with breastfeeding, right? Everything was like, no, at that time, see, this was the early 2000s. So at that time, everything was like formula is better. So everything for me was like this battle. Um, and so I became an advocate for breastfeeding and I was helping women do that. So, you know, kind of getting into different aspects of healthcare, kind of alternative, quote unquote, or holistic. Um, and then I became a doula because I had my experience of giving natural childbirth and I wanted to help women do the same. So I became a doula um, and I was back in school getting my pre-med requirements because you need them whether you go to nursing or, or physician's assistant. So I was doing kind of all of that. And in the world of continuing, you know, being in hospitals and, and all, seeing like all the impacts of healthcare and all the regulations and, and how they affect um, how they affect your quality of care. Um, I was still very much a leftist at that time. That was the other thing. Like when I went to college, I was surrounded by hardcore leftists and, you know, and, it, and I became one and, and I identified myself as a socialist and a Marxist. And um, I was really in that world. And I had even traveled to Cuba, which is a beautiful, it's a beautiful place. The people are wonderful. But it was really a shock because of the contradiction in my head of what I was told of this socialist paradise and what you see in reality. 
Um, and so that was kind of just like things, things that were accumulating and, and my experiences just, you know, as I got older and got married and had children and being in the public health, quote unquote, public health system um, and being in public education, I went to a public university. Um, now I can really step back and see how much indoctrination, how much um, uh, silencing there is for people, especially in those, those in the university system who have a diversity of ideas. You really don't even <clears throat> get to hear them. And in, in my time, I really thought that the predominant messaging was right-wing, but I was, I was wrong. I was surrounded by very extreme like left-wing professors who were really kind of beginning to put that into so much of the curriculum. And now it's completely even, even more so. Um, but, but then it didn't seem like it, but it really was to me. Um, but yeah, so I, and in the healthcare system, having that experience of this very type of authoritarian top-down approaches to, um, to just for you know women giving birth, like how you're supposed to do it when you're in the hospital and you're limited in choices. So I became an advocate for home birth um, because I was just like, you know, this is the most natural process, and 99% of the time. You know, if you allow yourself to experience it naturally, there's really no complications. And thankfully, yes, we have people who are trained, who are able to take care of those emergency situations. But if you're not in that setting where they're setting you up for it, you, the, the likelihood that you're going to have a very successful um, natural birth is greater if you just stay in your house and you're able to do that with, you know, certified midwife. Um, but yeah, so kind of all of these experiences were really getting me to challenge my mindset um, because I was very much, one, I'm stubborn. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's very hard. But when you are surrounded by the, um, how would I say it, with that echo chamber, um, it's really hard to break out of that. And you're, and very much so in that environment, the, and I was, you know, I wasn't in like a communist party, but I was surrounded by people who were in communist parties um, and who were in different organizations that were really out there recruiting for that. Um, I was more with people who were Black Panthers, people who were young lords, people who, who were involved in the anti-war movement from the left and those young people movements who were older and who were still community activists and they were doing a lot of good work. And that's the people that I was working with, but they were still, you know, they were trained Marxists and, you know, or at, at one time, whether they, some of them still advocated that. Um, some of them kind of were just like, well, I'm not into that hardcore messaging, but I identify as just, you know, someone on the left and someone that, for the working class. Um, it's really hard to kind of step out and to even think in a different way or be able to listen to someone who has a different perspective. So for a long time, I wanted to just hear the same. I didn't want to be challenged because I thought, well, they don't know what they're talking about because you think you know everything, especially when you're young and especially when you have a worldview that teaches you that anything that anyone tells you is propaganda. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, the reason why the reason why they're saying this, even though it might be something true, is it's all twisted up in their propaganda and they're not really, they don't really understand, you know, what the working class needs or 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 how or what we're trying to do. Um, 
so it wasn't until I was older and a little bit more mature and you're just around other people um, that I was just like, you know, let me, let me hear out, like I'm experiencing things in different ways. And I think what I learned about myself in that transition is that I was always anti-authoritarian um, and I was always anti-war. And I think seeing that switch, um, especially in the, under the Obama administration where a lot of leftists who were very much anti-war, who were very much anti-authoritarian, really sh they shut up and they stopped, um, they stopped clamoring, you know, they stopped, they stopped talking about that. And it's like, wait a minute. So because we have the first African-American president, he's still the president. Like he's still expanding the war theater. Like he's still signing these bills that are bad. And it really was just like, wait a minute, like what's going on? And so for me, that's when I kind of started seeing a shift um, in that hypocrisy, but it allowed me to step back and say, well, what is it that I really agree with? Um, and like I'd mentioned, I'd been to Cuba. So that started kind of weighing in my mind because I said, you know, this is very authoritarian. And it wasn't until a little bit later, like actually after I moved up to Vermont, um, that was a huge shift because when you're, you know, I grew up in New York City, New York City is a union city. Most people work either for the state or for the city on some level. There's a lot of those types of jobs. So a lot of people, they're members of unions they're, and they're member of municipal unions. Um, so you have a lot of that messaging in the city and you have a certain mindset when it comes to that. Um, and I was working in EMS, although I worked for a private company, um, still a lot of people, um, the, the union, the, the, the FDNY union and those municipal unions really controlled so much of how we functioned. Um, so, and that's the same for EMS or any other, for teachers, for any other, um, for any other type of job that there's so much union control in those jobs, even if you're not a member of the union. Um, so when I, when we moved up here, I mean, I live where there's more cows than people almost. Um, it's very rural. Estoy en el campo. Lo más campo que puede hay. I'm in, I'm in the, the country. So. What made you make that move? Um, you know, when my husband and I got married, we realized that we would never be able to afford to buy a house in the neighborhood we grew up in. It was just astronomical. Um, you know, part of that was gentrification and part of that was um, a lot of people leaving uh, downtown Manhattan after 9-11 and moving out into um, the other boroughs like Brooklyn and Queens and the Bronx, although that had already been happening before, it was much more pronounced now. So, you know, my parents bought their house for, in 1976, for $48,000. Um, that house today is worth over $1 million. Um, good, I mean, I'm happy for, for that, right? In that sense, but it's just, un it was unrealistic for us, still is unrealistic for us. So we already knew when we got married that we didn't want to stay in the city. Um, and we were also kind of looking at, you know, post 9-11 and just looking at how people react and things happen. It's like, we just knew we wanted to be somewhere else. So we'd explored a couple of different options. We looked at Florida, we looked at, you know, some other places, but um, we ended up just coming up here for like a weekend 
not knowing what to expect. We'd never been to, I didn't even know where Vermont was. Um, we had, our two kids were very small. So we were just looking for like a, a weekend place that we can, you know, that we can drive to. And a, 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 a resort came up on my, on my search and I said, okay, let's try it. We had no idea what to expect and we fell in love with it. It's really beautiful and peaceful here. And we would just come up here like every every time there was like a, a discount or any anything like that, we were just driving up here. And every time we came up here, like our kids really liked it and they were so relaxed. And it was just like, you know, I like it up here. And, um, and then we just decided, I, I was in graduate school at the time. I had decided to go into holistic medicine, having all that experience in the um, allopathic um, structure. I said, I wanna do something different with my education and be able to treat people more naturally. So as soon as I graduated, um, like a two weeks later, like we were in trucks driving our stuff up here <laughs> and we've been up here ever since. Awesome. And now we have a small homestead, we have chickens, <laughs> and we're growing as much of our own food as possible and all of that good stuff. That's awesome. No, that's uh, uh, one of the best uh, intro stories that uh, that's ever been uh, said on the show. So no, no, that was nice. Uh, don't forget to visit our sponsor, palomaverdescbd.com. It is a family-run business that my wife and I run out of our home. Uh, it, it is we've been we've had it for a little over two years, and the last year we have been strictly an online business. We've had our struggles, uh, but we've uh, persevered, and we have also recently added some new products uh, to our line. Uh, of course, you know that we have all the edibles, uh, the tinctures, uh, all the salves and uh, 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 creams, sports creams, and um, uh, and some of the pet products. But uh, we've uh, added this time some, uh, you know, bath bombs, 25 milligrams each. There's four in this bottle. Uh, you know, be sure to take care of your lady or um, you could take care of yourself if you're that kind of vato. You know, that's cool too. And also some uh, massage oil, once again, to take care of your lady or yourself. If you're that kind of vato, that's okay too. <laughs> and uh, when we first started the business, if any of you guys are aware, uh, it was meant to help our fathers out. And at that time, the, the stigma behind cannabis uh, products was still around here in our culture. Uh, our, our fathers weren't really up to it, but you know, we kind of told them that uh, there was no psychoactive effects or any THC in the product. And then they have been uh, users of it and they've gotten a lot of benefits from it. But we've also listened to our uh, uh, customers and many of them have mentioned that they'd like us to bring in a full spectrum product because there are, there are some uh, extra benefits sometimes through the entourage effect if you have some of the THC in it. So uh, we have a new uh, uh, full spectrum uh, tincture, uh, 2250 milligram uh, tincture bottle. Uh, so you can be sure to check that out if you're trying to get some of that, um, plus all the other products that we have. So visit palomaverdescbd.com use the promo code chingasos at checkout c h i n g a s o s for 20% off anything 
that you purchase, free shipping. So be sure to check it out. And I appreciate, uh, Vanessa and I appreciate any of your support. Get your products, take care of uh, your body and mind, and peace. Uh, and what I heard was that I don't know why your parents immigrated here, but let's just say it might have had to do with maybe some fallout of maybe some little bit of a U.S. foreign policy. And, you know, even when you said you went to Cuba and you saw what was going on there, that's also a, you know, uh, uh, like a reflection a little bit of also some U.S. foreign policy. And you said you were always anti-war and uh, and even like when you said that uh, after 9-11, you kind of uh, wanted to get away from all of the, you know, some again after that, that's a, some other U.S. foreign policy. So, uh, you know, it, it, uh, uh, U.S. foreign policies played a big role in, in, in how you've kind of moved uh, around in this in, in this world. And and in Vermont, uh, I don't know a lot of. Uh, of, of background history of the state, but I would have to think that regardless of U.S. foreign policy, you're, even, even though it's a state, obviously, of the union, it's far enough from a lot of that type of, of U.S. foreign policy in a way. Like, I mean, obviously, we pay tax, you got to pay taxes and, you know, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, how does the state, uh, like, you know, I guess my question is, did it, it, is, does U.S. foreign policy still play a major role in your life in the in a way that if something major happened, you are in a place where you know what U.S. foreign policy is not going to affect us as much over here or something like you know you know what I'm trying to ask a little bit. Yeah, I got you. Um, so where I live, about forty minutes from the border of Quebec of Canada, so you know, so it does affect us like anywhere else. Um, is it the same as if we lived in the city and we were really dependent on all of that and we were surrounded by so many people? No. Um, one of the nice things about moving up here is that there's just a much less, po less population density. Um, and that's good when it comes to those types of things. The other thing is there's a real history here of self-sufficiency. So even if you just have a little bit of land, um, and you don't know how to grow your own food, chances are your neighbor does and they'll help you set up a garden. Um, there's a lot of people who um, they have their own chickens. So if it's eggs or if it's uh, meat or things like that, um, you're able to be, you're able to be self-sufficient in many ways. You can hunt, right? We've been hunting. So like people hunt. So there's a level of self-sufficiency um, where it impacts us. So, I mean, like, so for example, a great example is right now the, the gas prices, right? This is a result of U.S. foreign policy. Um, it's really intense. And in rural communities, rural poverty is very intense and it's very different than urban poverty um, because in urban poverty, you have more resources that are much closer to you. Um, and in rural areas, you just don't have that. Um, so where I live, you, you know, a lot of people, you have to have a car. There is no mass transit here, none whatsoever. There's like a little bit of some buses in some places here and there. It, um, and, and they're very concentrated in, in that little, in that town area or in that city, because it's a smaller city. Um, but there's no way to really get around unless you have a car. So 
in a situation like this, there's people right now who um, it's really hard for them even to drive to work. It's easy to drive 30 to 40 miles one way to get to your job easily. Um, so in, and so in, in that type of a situation, anything that affects the economy in that way really is intensified here because mm. they're, although you can be very independent, but obviously like, you know, you got to get, you have to fill up your tank. Or if you have, um, because we live a little bit, we, we live more out, um, our energy dependencies and how we heat ourselves are different. So like I have wood stoves, um, but if there's a power outage, so for example, I have to have a generator. My generator needs to run either on propane or on gas. So it's just like, there's still that dependency on certain things that are outside of your control. There's only so much. I live like little house on the prairie, but with electricity. <laughs> so that's still gonna impact you in terms of the price. And it has a lot, I mean, and there was a gas station not too far from me that they had gas last Thursday. Their gas was $3.53. By Saturday, the gas went up to $4.50 in mm. two days. Um, and so for, and for a lot of people that makes it impossible. Like it's, it's too much on top of, um, you know, what you're paying for, for everything else. Um, because also like what people make in, in rural areas is much less compared to like what you would be making. Um, I mean, it all probably evens out at the end of the day. Like, so for some people, $4 and 50 cents may not be a lot for gas because where they are, it's $5 and 25 cents. But the taxes that we have in Vermont are probably gonna, cause there's a lot of taxes here, right? So mm. it, it, it could actually end up being like more expensive or, or just about the same. Um, but then if you're looking at people who um, generally are making a lot less per hour or, or, or whatever that may be, then it has. It. So it does have an impact in, in different ways, much more directly on the economic level. Um, if there is any type of like a major situation, which is one of the reasons we, we moved up so far away from a major city, I feel like we're doing pretty good. So, so uh, uh, a lot of those effects were like U.S. foreign policy. So the most recent uh u.s domestic policy that almost felt like a 9-11 type of uh of, of way was uh the, the the covid years here that we're still kind of hopefully getting out of uh how did uh covid affect uh your community so pretty intensely because what so vermont is a very blue state this is the state of bernie sanders um although we have a republican governor um, he's very much a progressive. And so what ended up happening here is um, the people in the state house, the governor and the Department of Health really were looking at how things, they were echoing what was being done in places like New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, um, what was being told to them directly, let's say from the, you know, NIH and things like that. But they weren't looking at the demographic and the reality of a rural state that has a very low population and a low population density. So what ended up happening is that um, the shutdown has had an inc incredibly negative economic impact here because so many people depend on their small businesses. Um, there's a lot of, there, there, there were a lot of small family owned type of businesses, um, even businesses that weren't necessarily that small um, like um, 
you know, different types of food producers and things like that, but they're very um, dependent on employees. So when things are shut down and, you know, you were literally told by the government, you're not even allowed to open your doors. Your employees are not allowed to, um, to go to work. Um, your children are not allowed to go to school. So it was a complete standstill like it was everywhere else. Um, but the impact here was devastating because once places were allowed to kind of start opening up, you didn't have that influx of population density like you have in some cities where they're able to kind of make up for it. They had their losses and they're able to make up for it. Mm -hmm. Well, here it was much more difficult because the on top of that, we're a state that's also dependent on tourism to a large degree. A lot of people come up here um, for skiing, like where ski season is waning, but you have that seasonal um, uh, number of people coming. And the same thing in the summer, we actually have a lot more people coming in the summer than in the winter because it's beautiful up here in the summer. And that has provided always a boom to a lot of these small type of businesses, whether they're restaurants or um, ecotourism or things like that. And so what happened is that as we started getting things open, you people weren't really traveling. Um, there were some areas, some resorts where people were kind of going to, but it just wasn't, um, they weren't moving to the restaurants and to these other types of small businesses. So, I mean, there was a time where every, every day when I would go into like towns that are near me, there was like another business that, that folded. Um, the other impact is that Vermont is one of the states that's been incredibly affected by the opiate um, epidemic. And so people who were no longer able to go to their, you know, AA meetings. Um, put on, uh, excuse me, let me just, uh, be, before the COVID, it was known, it was already a state yeah. that had, okay. Um, yeah. and, and why, you know, is it like demographics or just it's cold so, or... So the opiate epidemic really um, impacted rural communities in a, in, a, in, a, in a way. So at the height of it, Vermont was one of those states um, that was really affected. And just kind of, you know, the, the Appalachian Trail, it starts from Maine and it goes through Vermont. And if you follow that Appalachian Trail, you can follow the, the opiate epidemic as well. So a lot oh. of communities, rural, rural communities, you're going down through, then you go through parts of upstate New York, and then you go down into Pennsylvania and West Virginia. So a lot of these areas were really affected and impacted. Um, and part of it just had to do with the fact of how, um, you know, how these medications, because the opiate epidemic is driven by pharmaceutical companies and how they were um, recommending um, and what they were recommending to be given. So you had people who were functional as teachers and they got into a car accident and, you know, part of their pain management is we're going to have you take Vicodin or we're going to have you take um, a medication that's opiate based and you get addicted. And then, you, you know, not everyone, but a lot of people, for whatever reason, you kind of go down this path. So when COVID happened, people who were in treatment, people who were, you know, they're addicts, but they're functional and, and they had their system and part of their system was going to work, um, being accountable, mm. um, going to church, going to their meetings. That's what um, you mean by functional, right? That's what you mean by yeah. functional. Like, like you, they, yeah. Okay. I hear you. Like volunteering where they're out of, out of the, the, the place where they're, um, where they're, let's say, before rehab, and but they're they're working through that. Um, that got taken away, 
And so a lot of people fell back into that place of their addiction where they're using. Um, depression has always, uh, you know, been an issue. Um, also in Vermont, not just Vermont, I think certain, certain rural states, um, because our winters are really long, you're right, you have seasonal depression. Um, mm. Vermont's one of those places where, you know, that's, um, that's a, a, an issue. I've never and heard of that. I mean, I, you know, I, I said it kind of playing around like say, Oh, is it cold? But, but yeah, seasonal depression. I mean, I never like, so that's a thing. It's a thing. Oh, wow, I, never, so I never knew that. Yes. In Northern, well, yeah. And in Northern climates. Um, so the demographic for suicide is typically older men, like in their sixties and up, that's kind of the demographic where you see like when suicides are happening, it happens in that demographic. Mm. Um, so because of how things were, how the shutdown affected people um, really have in addition to, and as an extension of the opiate epidemic and that crisis that really got much worse, that's tied into a mental health crisis that got much worse as well. So if you think about it, um, you had um, parents who were um, in recovery, who were no longer in recovery. So what effect did that have on their children who are now home all day with a parent who's back into their addiction? Um, so, and then now they're, now they're not even able to go to school. Now school is virtual and all of these things, right? So there's been a change. There's been a shift in the demographic of who is now committing suicide, suicidal ideation. It has shifted from that older demographic and it's gone all the way to children who are really young, who are filling up the emergency rooms, um, Mm. ODs are filling up the emergency rooms. Um, and unfortunately, here, as I'm sure it is in other states that may have a similar struggle, it's just not something that the health departments were talking about at all. Every day they were just focused on, you know, how many people tested positive, um, what percentage of people had their, you know, had their injections. And they weren't talking about what was actually happening in our local hospitals, which is um, an explosion of, of, of crisis um, of, of younger and younger people. It's like, uh, even right now, it's like uh, I was thinking, and when you said the word explosion, it's like, uh, so you like US foreign policy drops bombs and there's explosions and it's devastation. And even, you know, domestic policy, you know, there are explosions and then you get the residual effects that are still gonna be, uh, going on, it sounds like from what you're saying, for many, many, many years, uh, you know, especially if you're saying there's a shift in the in, in, uh, in, in the demographics of younger kids and all that. Uh, what does that then mean uh, a little bit? I've told, uh, can you talk a little bit about your business? And does that mean that, I don't know, I mean, it's, you know, I don't want to say it this way, but like, is business like good that people are maybe trying to go holistic or are people then just saying, they're just self-medicating in a different way. I mean, I don't know, like how, how has that affected, I guess, your business, you know, since that's kind of what you get into. It's definitely, it's definitely been, it's definitely been interesting. I will tell you that um, in, in Vermont, acupuncturist was one of the um, health professions that was not allowed to continue mm. operating. Um, in other states, acupuncturists were allowed. So it's, it was like weird I think part of it had to do with lobbying or something. Um, but I had a particular component of my treatment where I did work with people who um, are struggling with addiction. And I was just kind of part of the team 
that helped with that. Um, so it was really devastating personally in knowing that there were, you know, patients who I was kind of part of that, um, that team that they had to, to work with them that, you know, they didn't have access to anymore. Um, and that, you know, really put it in a certain perspective too, because I was already being a libertarian and understanding how devastating government overreach and top-down policy is, lo viví en carne propia. You know, like you see it in, in, in your community every day, even though people may not relate it to that, but that is what it is. Because if we didn't have those type of policies and people were able to mitigate their risk with the information that we were having, then things would go about differently. People would be able to make those choices and say, you know, I'm at a high risk category. I'm going to stay home. I'm going to wait this out a little bit. I'm going to wait till things pass versus I'm in, I'm, I'm a young person. I'm healthy. I'm going to mitigate this risk in a different way. I'm going to continue providing for my family and, and this is, and, and mitigate my risk maybe in different ways at my job, but people were stripped of those decisions. So everything was top down. And so you really see that impact. And so whether it's foreign policy or domestic policy, top down authoritarian um, centralized planning doesn't work. And like we keep, we keep relearning this or we keep living this lesson. I don't know if we're learning it, um, but, but certainly, um, you know, we see that. In terms of business, like I really had to pivot the way I did things because I didn't like the idea that I could be told you can't take care of patients. Um, so one of the things that I started doing was, um, and I lost the location because once things were, we were allowed to go back, um, by then I didn't have the same patient load to be, you know, to be providing me the income to pay the rent. So I pivoted and I started seeing patients at home. Hmm. Um, plus, um, you know, I, and cause I didn't have a home office at that time. So I thought, okay, this is also a way for me to be able to offer my services, you know, going in different places because where I live, my part of the state, there's hardly any acupuncturists. Um, and there's a lot of people who are older and they're homebound. So it, it, it was an opportunity for me because I got to go to other parts of the state and really kind of meet with people and learn more about people um, and engage people's understanding of like what was happening. I mean, the conversation was always about like how our government was responding to this. And in Vermont, it seems so um, overarching because of how, um, because of just how different we are. It's, it's so much more rural. So it seemed like the things that they needed to do in New York or they, or that they were doing in New York city, it didn't make sense that they were doing them in Vermont. Um, in Vermont, there's maybe 600,000 people that live in the state, maybe. Um, in New York City, I think like, you know, my block in Queens had 600,000 people. So certainly it's, it's a very different um, situation in that sense. And, you know, I was looking at places like, uh, what is it, North Dakota or South Dakota, where it's actually quite similar to Vermont. They don't have a lot of people. It's a very rural state. And they took a completely different approach to it. And they did very well. And so my talking point to a lot of folks is, well, we already have an example. We have South Dakota that's very similar to Vermont in a lot of ways. And they don't have any, you know, they don't have, they certainly don't have any more um, 
of the virus than we do here. And yet, you know, they're doing all these things and they're not letting people go to work and, you know, companies are closing and, and businesses are closing and people are getting more depressed. And, you know, so it was always, and, and that was a conversation so many people had, which is why I realized that people are really looking for liberty. Um, even in a state like this, um, it was always the conversation about, you know, this is wrong or, um, this has been going on too long and we don't have any input and people, you know, people should have the right to make their own choices. That was really the main thing. And it just made me realize how important it is to have, um, an organization that's functional, that's talking to these things. Um, and that is able to kind of bring this message because in Vermont, like I said, it's very left wing and it almost seems as if there is no alternative voice. And even the Republican party, <clears throat> especially at that time was really struggling because, you know, you had most Republicans who didn't necessarily want to identify it with Trump. They wanted to identify kind of more like old school Republicans. And you had some other Republicans who were like full on with Trump. So they were having their own like internal thing, but they weren't speaking on the government overreach. Yeah, so, well, it I was seemed gonna... like everyone was on board with it, but it's just not true. And that's not reflective of how a lot of people felt here. Yeah, so when, when, when we speak of like US foreign policy or domestic policy, even like COVID, like we're also battling uh, the like military industrial complex and the lobbying system, and then the pharmaceutical industrial complex and, and its lobbying system. So that is where uh, libertarians come in and try to talk about uh, the system as, as a whole and how Republicans and Democrats, uh, you know, are, are part of the problem. Um, you had said earlier that it was hard to get out of the echo chamber that you were in when you were, um, you know, when you were hanging around with, uh, you know, the socialists and the Marxists. Uh, uh, how did you break away and then how did you get uh, active in the libertarian uh, party in like uh, in Vermont? So when I was, um, it was like, it was a slow gradual process. When I was in graduate school, I had a friend who she called herself a libertarian and I didn't know what the hell that was. And in my head, a libertarian was like a really right wing, like right wing Republican. Like, Cause I just didn't know what that was. It sounded really weird to me, but she didn't, she wasn't like that. And we would have some really good conversations and we agreed with so many things. And I was just like, this is weird. Like, how do we agree on certain things? But I'm a leftist and you're like, what is that? What is this? Um, and the things we agreed upon, like, you know, we weren't, we weren't for authoritarianism. We weren't for war, um, wanted government out of our lives. And I was like, wait a minute, what's going on? Um, and that was a process that made me really start to examine, like, what is it that I'm advocating? Because I don't think I'm really clear on it. And it made me start looking at Marxism and socialism and Venezuela and Cuba and all of these things that I was told that I'm hearing propaganda about in a really different way. Um, and in the interim of like that, and I wasn't very active at that time. It was just kind of me in my mind. At that time I was, um, I was going to school and I was working in the hospital system and kind of integrating things on that level. When we moved up into Vermont, that's when 
the the ideological shift really like where i was really thinking about more philosophically um and part of that is because i became a gun owner and <laughs> and and that was really a life shift because i'm living in a place where um i had to take responsibility for my safety um, i'm living in a place where there's animals if i pick up the phone and call 911 they don't show up um, maybe until tomorrow. So there is, so it's very, it's a very different reality of, you know, what you're used to in the city. Um, if I called 911 for an ambulance, maybe they'll show up in an hour or two unless they're busy somewhere else. So it was really a paradigm shift of, I had to um, take ownership of like, wait a minute, of the responsibilities of living that you don't think about when you live in a city or when you live in like a big suburb necessarily. I didn't. Um, so that was a huge shift for me. And you go to the gun store and you're talking with other people who've been gun owners that this is part of their culture. Um, and they're expressing ideas that are really different from mine. And I had made a conscious decision at that point that I wanted to have conversations with people that had different ideas that I wanted to hear out. And most of the time we really agreed on a lot of things. And it just made me start questioning and looking into um, and realizing that the, at the core of leftism is it is a very authoritarian. They just phrase it in a different way to give you to create the illusion of choice, to create the illusion of freedom. But it's actually the opposite. Um, and I, so I started kind of red pilling myself <laughs> in that in that way. Um, and it's it's been one of the best things. And so um, my friend who's libertarian, she still she still live in, in still lives in New York, you know, like we, we we talk every day, actually, we text each other every day, we, we talk in memes. So every day we're sending each other memes. Um, but back then, you know, we just kind of communicate. And this was right after the um, the 2016 presidential campaign. And, um, you know, so there was a lot of disillusionment, especially in Vermont with like Bernie Sanders and he kind of gave up and he's part of the establishment and all this stuff. And um, I started looking into what is libertarianism, because these were the folks that I was having really interesting conversations with, especially online. And um, I found a local libertarian party, my county party, and I was just like, oh, you know, I want to go to this. Like, I want to learn, like, what is this about? And I went. And um, and I became a member and it was like really cool, like, oh, my gosh, there's libertarians in Vermont. Um, and one of them was and I was like, where can I like, what can I do? Like, what can I listen to? Like, I like to listen to podcasts. And one of them was like, oh, you should listen to Tom Woods. And that's that was it. So I started listening to Tom Woods every day um, and really understanding um, some some libertarian principles. Um, and, and was like, wow, this is the stuff that I really thought for me, because I've always just been like a freedom person. Like these are really the principles that I agree with. I just never understood that these are classical liberal principles. They're the opposite of leftist principles, but leftism has a wonderful marketing mechanism. And they use a lot of great kind of words and terms, but in practice, as we know, um, they're quite the opposite. So I was really, really blessed to just you know have encountered different people and i think that um just making the conscious decision to have conversations with people that don't think like me 
um, was the best decision I ever made. And um, one thing is uh, joining your local county party and asking, hey, uh, what can I jam so I can kind of learn more about uh, this libertarian stuff, but full, you know, uh, you know, now it's 2022 and you are the current uh, chair of the whole state uh, of uh, Vermont, uh, the LP. Uh, how did uh, that happen? And uh, and talk about that because uh, that's that's awesome. You know, that's cool. Uh, I think that was cool when you uh, posted about it online. Yeah. So, um yeah, it was definitely one of the main things was the pandemic. Um, there was definitely a void, I think, not only in my state, but, you know, in other affiliates where it seemed like libertarians were crickets when not all of them, but in some places there, there was like crickets. Um, and, you know, like in the beginning, a lot of us like didn't we didn't know like what was going on, what to expect. I was very suspect. I forgot to mention that. When I moved up here, um, I had become pretty active in terms of like health choice and medical freedom. That was just like the other thing. And one of the reasons for that is because my kids are vaccine injured. So we moved to Vermont because Vermont had at that time, they had a philosophical as well as a religious exemption. Um, and I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I'm the mom of vaccine injured kids. So I needed to make sure that I lived somewhere um, where I can, you know, where I can protect them from that because they were still in the school system. Mm. Um, and so when this thing started um, with the pandemic, I was already like had my antennas up because even bef way before the pandemic, um, the year before, in fact, in our state house, there were several bills that were being introduced to remove religious exemption. They had already gotten rid of philosophical. So I already had like a group of moms and and people who were really about health choice, medical freedom, and preserving that in the state. Um, and so once this started happening, we were hearing things that were reminding, that were kind of reminders of the rhetoric that's used to take away those freedoms. So my antennas are up. And um, the party here itself necessarily wasn't really active. Like that just wasn't something that people were talking about or wanted to talk about. Um, and it, and so I was just, I focused on the grassroots level, which is something I always do and organizing with, um, people that I had already been working with. And we formed, um, we formed, um, a grassroots organization, um, and started working with that to kind of help people figure out like, okay, like, so what's the deal with the mask mandates and looking for research on that. And, you know, there's exemptions and like, what are the exemptions for? And kind of like educating people on like what they can do um, in terms of the mandates and looking and and looking for places that weren't imposing that, that were allowing people to make that personal choice. Um, but as time progressed, it was just obvious that there was just this void um, in terms of that, in the political space of having a political organization that goes, was going to speak to that. Um, and so <clears throat> myself and others um, kind of towards the end of like 2021, we were like, okay, like, well, it's time to get things moving. And we want to, I started um, just reaching out to folks that I knew who were already active in the liberty space with the medical choice, um, the medical freedom movement and being like, you know what, 
like you guys are for liberty and like we like we need this energy in the libertarian party um and just like how, you know like what do you guys feel about like and a lot of these people were also people because i had become active in the second amendment movement here so a lot of people are kind of like folks from all over and it's like you know if you guys are like for liberty and talking about like non-aggression principle um private property is an extension of human rights and um individual rights and and it was quite a few people and, and i was just like you know like you should join the libertarian party so i just started like kind of recruiting people and like you should join the libertarian party um and as time progressed it was just like you know there was people who wanted to join um and people who were joining and um you know wanted to become active and so um as that happened you know there was some internal conflict like has been happening in other affiliates but um, eventually we we took the party from being one that really just wasn't talking to the issues that a lot of people wanted it to talk about to now where we have a really active membership. Um, we have people who are like organizing events and um, really doing a lot of cool stuff and who are super excited not only about being part of, you know, the Libertarian Party here in Vermont, but just being part of like a liberty movement on a national level. Um, and as hard and as um, frustrating it, it can be sometimes with everything that's happening around us. And it seems like um, it, it's hard to get that message out, but when you go out and you talk to everyday people, which is why it's so important to have these conversations in person with people, you realize that so many people are really looking for that message. And, and those are the ideals that they do have. Um, it's easy to get bogged down on social media and feel like everyone thinks the same way about the pandemic or about, you know, pick an issue. And it's not true. There's a lot of diversity of thought out there. There's a lot of people um, who aren't trustful of the media, um, who, who are very critical thinkers. Um, they're just not the loudest voices necessarily. And when you go and you speak to them in person or you have an activity and, or an event, it's like, oh, people can join you. Um, one of the things we did in, back in October is my friend and I, we organized Canafest. Um, we wanted to have a free market festival in Vermont that was a family-friendly cannabis festival. And we had it on a private property that was donated to, to us. And um, people got to experience for the first time kind of being somewhere where they can hang out, their kids can run around and have a good time. We had music and we were talking about libertarianism and we we're talking about liberty. And I was telling people, this is basically what it is. It's, you know, don't hurt people don't take their stuff. If you want to buy cannabis, have cannabis. If you want to like, if you want to sell something that you make in your home, like go right ahead. If you want to drink a gallon of raw milk, have at it. We created this space because we wanted people to experience what it is to be free. Um, and we forget what it was. We, we forget what that is when everywhere you go, they're telling you, you have to have your face covered or you're not allowed to go somewhere because you have to have a pharmaceutical chemical put in your body. Um, so a lot of people like came from that experience too, wanting to join the party. And then I was just like, all right, well, um, there's definitely a need for leadership and no one else was really stepping up. And I, I felt like, okay, let me put myself out there. Let me do this and see if I can at least like put my best work forward. Um, because I, you know, I, I just felt like it was the right thing to do. Um, and I also feel like, you know, when it comes to, 
um, taking the responsibilities of leadership, you know, we need to have people that are positive and that, you know, have a work ethic and are willing to work with people and, and listen and, and make things happen. And this is just the time we're just in a time right now where we can't sit back and allow the world to pass us by. We really have to be active and be advocates and be brave. It's not easy. We have to, you know, we have to step up and make things happen. Um, so the politics of the Libertarian Party in your state are one thing. What are the prospects of uh, libertarians actually winning office in your state? What, uh, uh, what is the uphill battle on that, that front? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it's definitely going to be a much more grassroots approach where we are getting out there and talking to people. So there's a couple of factors that affect um, here. First of all, voter turnout is pretty low. Um, I ran for my local select board and I, I didn't win. I wasn't expecting to, but I really did it more just because I was telling people, hey, run for your select board is like your city council, but okay. for your town. Um, so I was like, run for your select board, run for your um, fun for your school board. So I was like, well, let me do it. Right. I'm telling everyone to do it. Um, and I did it. And my town that has about 2000 voters, um, less than way less than 500. Um, let me think about 450 people actually voted. Um, that's super low turnout. Now I'm sure it's a little bit higher when it's a bigger election, but it's not really that much higher. So that so that's one factor where you have low voter turnout. And the reasons why can vary. There's a large elder population in Vermont. So it could just be that some of these folks are somewhat marginalized. They're not able to get, you know, to vote. Um, they don't know how to get their absentee ballot or maybe, you know, so access is an issue. Um, apathy may be another issue. People really feel like whether, um, you know, their local representatives don't listen to them. Um, we have, here you have the ability, you can pick up the phone and you can talk to your local senator or your local rep. Um, and you can, you know, it's a little bit easier to be in touch with them. But um, the last two years with the pandemic and this kind of I've noticed, this is my personal opinion, this kind of top-down um, approach that politicians and bureaucrats have taken, um, they're not so eager to listen to you when you're talking outside of that narrative. So I think some people too feel like they're not being listened to. Um, so that's another factor. Um, the other thing is a lot of people don't know what libertarians are. They, and so there's more talk about libertarians because, you know, you have people like Dave Smith and, and Spike Cohen um, and Martha Bueno and other people who are starting to make the rounds where people are seeing them on news outlets and things like that. So and Larry Sharp. Right. And so um, they're like, well, what is that? But they don't necessarily know what that is. So okay, I'm on the phone. Yeah, you have to ask dad. I'm on a Zoom. It's ready. You have to ask dad. Sorry. That's all right. Mom and uh, Mommy, mom and LP dinner. chair. I know. <laughs> like ask that. Dinner, dinner's over there. <laughs> um, so the other thing just so it's education. People don't know. So one of the things that we're doing is we are focusing on creating events 
um, making sure that like we are out there and getting our message of like what is a libertarian. So we have a lot of cool ideas that we're coming up with about getting getting that out. One of them is going to be you know using social media. One of them is going to be just getting out to different events in person. It's exciting because spring is almost here, although we are expecting another 10 inches of snow. <laughs> but it's almost here, and that means outside events. So we're really excited about um, all the different places that we're going to be going to and tabling and talking to people um, and getting that word out. So it's definitely a challenge for a lot of reasons. Um, but we we have had people that run as libertarians um no one elected as of yet but we're we're definitely working on it and i think we're in the advantage right now because people are really tired of the same old same old and i think that's the same everywhere i don't think that's just here um perfect uh thank you olga for uh coming on the show uh i hope that you feel that i respected your time and uh, if you don't mind, could you kind of talk just uh, uh, for sure plug in where people can uh, reach you, but also talk a little bit of uh, kind of what your uh, future plans are on like your podcast front and your like uh, for sure you're going to be busy on the on the party side. But, you know, anything that uh, you feel that's important so people can, uh, you know, get involved, uh, uh, you know, with you or, or follow you. Yeah, so people can reach me. Uh, you can reach me on Facebook. You can reach me at Twitter. I think on Twitter, I am at, um, it's at Liberty15Me. I think that's my Twitter handle. Um, you can go to the Latina Libertarian page on Facebook, follow me there. You can email me at LibertyAndMe802 at Gmail if you want to do that. So I do have a podcast. I haven't gone on it, um, I think since February, like the end of January, just because been busy with work on the party and getting everything kind of resuscitated and off the ground. Um, but I'm definitely going to be getting back on that. I've been primarily doing local interviews with people because I'm trying to, I'm trying to break the mold of um, what people think libertarians are. So primarily people think of libertarian, they think it's white, white dudes. And it's like, no, there's Latinos, there's Latinas, there's people who live in rural places, there's people who live in cities. Um, so, but I've, I've kept it primarily like talking to other Vermonters and kind of putting in that Liberty perspective. But I'm definitely excited with the prospects of talking of having you on my, and we're gonna turn the tables and, and interview you on mine, um, interested in doing that. But yeah, so right now, outside of my family, my priority is um, the Vermont Libertarian Party um, and just and just getting us um, to a place where we can really support um, some local activism and people running for office. Perfect. Uh, thank you, Olga. And uh, hopefully uh, uh, we'll have you back on uh, after uh, you guys get a, a, somebody elected there in Vermont. Uh, I think it will happen definitely with uh, under your leadership. Uh, thank you. And I hope to talk with you soon on my show.